0: Okay, we're now going to hear from um, God's Word again, and this is the passage that the um, sermon uh, is based on. Uh, quite a long passage today in Romans um, chapter 9, verse 30 to 21. And uh, we're in this section of Romans where Paul is dealing with this big question, why is it that some some people believe the gospel and yet many don't? Why do some people believe the gospel, um, but many don't? And that was a huge question for Paul because many of his fellow Jews didn't believe the gospel, which created a big problem in many minds because historically the, the Jews, the Israelites, they were God's people. And yet when, when the Saviour finally came, so many of the Jewish people rejected the Messiah. And that raised a big question. Did, did God's plan fail? Did something go terribly wrong? And uh, Paul's answering that question in Romans uh, 9 to 11. And uh, so far, he's answered it from God's perspective. You know, the, from God's perspective, everything's in place because God has his elect uh, and God elects uh, those who are saved and uh, passes over the rest. And uh, so not, not all of Israel were elect. That's always been the case, as Paul taught. Uh, so there's no problem there on God's behalf. But now in this passage, Paul kind of shifts camera angles. He goes and now looks at it from the human perspective. And from the human perspective, what actually went wrong with the Jewish nation? Why did they reject the Messiah? And so that's what this passage is about. Uh, It has a lot to teach us, of course. And so let's listen to um, the passage read and uh, then we'll uh, unpack its meaning. So hear God's word, uh, Romans 9 verse 30. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need uh, your spirit to enlighten our minds, Father, because we know that uh, without your spirit, our minds remain darkened to the truth and we can't see uh, what you are saying to us. But we pray that your spirit would shine the light uh, of of, uh, of your word into our minds and, Lord, that we would be able to see and believe. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that if... Uh, If there are any of us here who have not understood the gospel, that today would be the day that that you make that clear. Uh, But we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you bring conviction upon us that what this passage teaches, that we would embrace, uh, that we would put it into practice. And where we have strayed from you, we pray that through it, you would call us back, uh, that we might put our hope in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There was once a um, senior citizen uh, driving down the Calder freeway. And as he was driving, his uh, wife calls him and uh, in a worried voice says to him, Barry, be very careful. I've just heard breaking news that there is a madman driving down the wrong way on the Calder freeway. And uh, Barry, in a somewhat distressed voice, says, yeah, I know, but it's not just one madman. There are literally hundreds of them. See, going in the wrong direction can be extremely dangerous, especially in Barry's case, Um, but it's actually even more so when it comes to your eternal destination. And see, that's what this passage in Romans shows us. It shows us that it's possible for people, especially religious people, especially people who know God, even people who grow up in the church, it's possible to actually be completely ignorant of the way of salvation. And uh, that was the case with so many of uh, Paul's fellow Jews. So many of them were going in the wrong direction. Uh, they thought they were going in the direction that would, that would end with God's favour, you know, end in eternal life. And yet so many of them were completely ignorant of the fact that they were heading down the wrong lane, going the wrong way, heading for certain disaster And so in this passage, Paul actually talks about what his fellow Jews got so wrong. Okay, Why is it that they missed what seems so obvious? Okay, The Saviour has come, the one that their scriptures have been pointing to, the one that they were looking forward to. He finally arrives and they just stumble over him. They don't actually see who he really is. How could that be? So that's what Paul answers here for us. And uh, it's, it's a message uh, that shows us that, it, that the ones who should know best can be completely oblivious to the plain facts. And so this, is, this passage, it's not a message for people out there. It's a, it's a message for people in here. It's a message for us to make sure that we haven't missed what the Bible is all about, to make sure that, we have, that we're not going down the wrong way, heading in the wrong direction. Okay, so let's, let's listen to the teaching of this passage. I've got three uh, points today, and the first one is uh, that, that the passage teaches us that there are two very different ways of seeking righteousness, two very different ways. And uh, Paul lays them out in verses uh, 30 of chapter 9 through to uh, chapter 10, verse 4. Uh, and notice Paul, he actually begins with this huge irony, Uh, The irony is, verse 30, he says, What shall we say that Gentiles who, listen, did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, from a human point of view, this was crazy. This was completely unexpected because here you have the Jewish people who had the law Okay, they knew what righteousness was all about because they studied the law. They were in tune with, with what, what it means, you know, what righteousness means. They had it all before them. And then you've got the Gentiles who had no idea. Okay, they didn't grow up going to Saturday school. They, they, they weren't into the law. They weren't pursuing any of that stuff. And yet what happened? What, was the, what happened when Jesus came? So many Gentiles became believers. So many Gentiles received righteousness whereas so many Jews rejected it. What's going on? How could that be? Well, Paul tells us in verse 32, he, he says, why, why? Why did it go wrong? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if as if it were based on works. Now, this distinction between faith and works, this is what Jesus so vividly captured in that that. That parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, what Paul is talking about here, it's exactly what Jesus illustrated in that parable. Because in that parable, you've got these two men going up to the temple to pray: a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee he gets in there and he gets up and he starts praying to God, thanking God how you know he's gone really well in life. Now, for the Pharisee, his life was all about trying to earn God's acceptance by keeping the law. And he probably wasn't certain that he'd actually achieved it yet. But what he was certain of was, compared to everyone else, he was doing really well. Especially when he looked over in the corner at what is that guy doing here, that tax collector? You know, why would he be in the temple? He doesn't deserve to be here, he's not a good person. And then you have the tax collector. What is he doing in the temple? Well, he's also praying, but his prayer is so much different to the Pharisee. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector was deeply aware that he deserved nothing good from God. He was deeply aware of his sinfulness. And so he just prayed a very simple prayer Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then Jesus asks the crowd who are listening to this parable, he says, Which one do you reckon was right with God? Which one? And to the shock of those listening, it wasn't that good man. It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the bad man. It was the tax collector. See, the one who was trying to earn God's favor didn't receive it. But the one who was not trying did. And that's the irony of the gospel. Okay, The irony of the gospel is you can only gain a right standing with God when you stop trying to earn it when you stop trying to achieve it. Because getting a right standing with God, this righteousness that Paul's talking about, is not something that we achieve. It's only something that we can receive. Now look at what happens to those who 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 do rely on their own works to uh, get right with God. Have a look at verse 32. It says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. <clears throat> As it's written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what do you think the stone is in that verse? The stone is Jesus. And, uh, you know, so many passages in the Bible um, unpack that for us. Jesus is described as a rock of refuge, you know, someone you can flee to and find safety in trouble. Uh, Jesus is the rock of salvation. There's so many of the Psalms celebrate. Uh, even Jesus used that image of, of a rock uh, that you can build a house on. And when, and when the, the judgment comes and sweeps everything away, if you're standing on the rock, you'll be safe. You won't be swept away in the coming judgment. And so that's what it means. Jesus is this rock of salvation. But see, for many, Jesus is not that kind of rock. For many, Jesus is like a, a stone that you trip up on. And you think, what was that? You don't, don't get what it's about. And the reason for that, the reason you can't have Jesus as a rock of salvation, you can't have him as that unless you first of all let go of any sense that your own righteousness qualifies you to be fit for God's presence. Okay, Until you let that go, you'll never be able to embrace Jesus. You always just trip over him and think, what, what, what's that about? And that's what Paul reiterates in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10. So here he shows us that the heart of the Jews' problem is, yes, they had a zeal for God. There's no question about their sincerity. They had this zeal for God, and yet it wasn't based on the truth. It wasn't based on the gospel. You know, they had a whole faulty premise. The way they approached the law, they didn't see the law as something that was showing them what God is like and how far short we fall of God's standards. For then they looked at the law as if it was kind of a ladder that you climb up, a moral ladder, and, and, and you try really hard and you sort of climb this ladder, and eventually you can get to the point where God says, well done, you've, you've made it. But that's not what the law is. The law is not a ladder. To climb, the, the law is more like a sign, a signpost pointing us to the need that we have of a Saviour. That's why verse 4, it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end, the end of the law, that means that Christ is the one who has fulfilled all the requirements in our place. That's why he came as a man. That's why he lived. All those years, because he was doing what we couldn't do. He was fulfilling the requirements of the law for us. And by doing that, he's put an end to the law, you know, in terms of we can't look at it now as a way to salvation, but we look to Christ. That's why everyone who believes in him, it says, will not be put to shame. And so that's how you receive righteousness. You don't do it by achieving it, you do it by receiving it. And it's Christ's righteousness that we receive by faith. That's what the Jews missed. It's what so many of the Gentiles found and rejoiced in. It's like why the tax collector could go home justified before God because he received righteousness, the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, it is very possible, though, that there are some here today who are making the same mistake that many of Paul's fellow Jews made. Okay, Because it was, it was among the religious that this was missed. It was, it was among those who were informed, those who were the insiders. They were the ones who missed out. And it's this mistake of thinking that God will accept you based on your performance. That will not save you. Okay, You've got to repent of that. Now, often when we talk about repentance, we talk about repenting from bad things, you know, from sin, which, of course, we must do. But we must also repent of our self-righteousness, thinking that what we do can earn God's favour. That's wrong. We need to repent of that because only Christ can save us. Only his righteousness can make us right with God. And so until we repent of our self-righteousness, and embrace Christ's righteousness, we'll, we'll always be estranged from God. We won't know Him. We'll be like these Jewish people who had a zeal for God and yet a zeal not based on the truth of the gospel. But you know, even as Christians, though, I think we do need to hear this again and again. We need to be constantly reminded, don't look to yourself, don't look to your own righteousness, but look to Christ. We need to constantly be reminded of that. Because self-righteousness is something that it's almost like it clings to us. You know, like barnacles on a boat. It's probably not a good illustration for us because we're not all sea people, but apparently barnacles, you scrape them off and then you come back and there's more there. They just keep clinging to the boat. It's like self-righteousness in in our hearts. You know, we repent of it and the next day we find we're back in it again. You know, we're criticizing others. We're thinking we're better than other people. Uh, What's happened? Self-righteousness has come back. You know, we're relying on our own goodness rather than Christ's alone. In fact, as Christians, um, we can tend to gravitate toward relying on our service to Christ rather than the righteousness of Christ uh, for God's favour. I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, you feel like God loves you more based on your performance. So the more you serve Him, the more you do what's right. You feel like... God, look, is now smiling at you. Now he accepts you. Now he's thinking, yeah, you're, a, you're good. But we've forgotten. What brings God's smile into our lives? Not our service, but Christ's righteousness. Okay, we need to rest in that. In fact, when, when we do rely on our own service, it actually makes service a burden. Because it now feels like something we have to do to, to uh, measure up. But if we have Christ's righteousness, serving Him is a joy. We're not doing it to measure up. We're doing it because God loves us. We can can serve in the freedom of of knowing that we are fully loved and accepted in Christ. And so there is this constant need uh, to have our hearts reoriented to looking to Christ alone as our righteousness and not to anything in us. We need to be constantly doing that. It needs to be like a daily prayer. Lord, help me to remember today, that I'm loved because of Christ's righteousness, that I'm accepted in him and help me to now serve you out of the joy of that acceptance. Now, just one other application of these uh, verses here. Uh, We see that sincerity and zeal, okay, sincerity and zeal, they're completely useless if it's not based on the truth, right? Because... What does Paul say there in verse uh, 2? He says about the Jews, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, their commitment to living for God, that wasn't half-hearted. It wasn't something that they occasionally did. It was something that they were passionate about. So these were very sincere people, thinking that they knew God, and yet it was completely mistaken. They were ignorant of the truth. And what that shows us is that sincerity and zeal, they count for nothing if it's not based in the truth. And that's something we really need to think through because in our culture today, we live in a culture that says truth doesn't matter or a culture that says truth is just, uh, you know, whatever you want it to be. so, So long as you're sincere about what you believe, and that's fine, so long as it makes you happy. But here we see what you believe does matter. Okay, the truth does matter. You can be sincere about something, but if it's not true, then it does nothing for you. In fact, uh, in our culture, a lot of people assume that all God cares about is sincerity. You know, as long as you're trying your hardest, as long as you're sincere about it, then God's not really going to worry about what you believe or not. He'll accept you, but that's not true. Here we see you know, some sincere people thinking they're living for God, zealous about it, and yet what? They're still outside God's kingdom. See, the truth matters. The gospel matters. If you have sincerity, it has to be based on the truth of the gospel. Any other sincerity doesn't do anything for you. It's kind of like, you know, Barry, um, you know, he sincerely thought he was going the right way down that freeway, right? But it didn't matter how sincere he was about it, he was wrong. He was going in the wrong direction. And that's the case with all, all religions. Okay, There's a lot of sincere people in the world following other religions. Okay, That doesn't make any difference on the Day of Judgment. If you don't have Christ's righteousness, you're lost forever. So we need to have Christ alone for salvation. So that's the first thing this passage shows us. There are two very different paths of righteousness Only one of them is correct, and that is Christ alone. Now, the second thing we see in this passage, though, uh, we see Scripture's witness to Christ's righteousness. You see, Paul, he's made this big claim that the Jews who were zealous for God were all going the wrong way. They were completely ignorant of the truth. And Paul needs to prove that claim. And he does that in verses 5 uh, to 13. Uh, where here he, he goes back to the very law itself. He says, you know, what does the law actually teach? Does the law teach that if you obey it, you'll get saved? Or does the law point us to the need to have a saviour? And so Paul, he does that uh, in a couple of places. So in verse 5, he points us to uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 5. Um, he writes, Moses uh, writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now according to Paul, what Moses was stating there is this principle that if you could obey the law perfectly, you would be righteous. That's what it means that uh, you know, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And uh, that, that's something that Jesus also taught. Uh, Sharif read that passage earlier, you know the, the rich man, the rich young ruler coming to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? He says, you know the commandments, do them and you'll, you'll live. And we, we hear that going, hang on a minute, Jesus. Are you saying that the way to inherit eternal life is by keeping the law? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, it's so not what he's saying. What Jesus is doing, he's using this principle from Leviticus to, to, to draw the man out because the man did think that he had kept the law. You know, Jesus says, "What you know, you know the commandments, keep them. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I've done all that ever since I was little. I've done it, tick. What else is there? And G- what does Jesus do? He just pushes a little harder. He really just scratches the surface in this man's life and says, okay, well, what about all that money you've got? Give it up. Give it away. Live the life of radical generosity that the law ultimately points us to. And that's something that young man could not do because nothing would come between him and his money. Nothing at all. And so what has Jesus done? He's shown that that the man has failed at the very first commandment to have no other gods before God because money was his real God. And so Jesus shows him that his righteousness that he had was completely empty. He hadn't kept the law at all. And that, that was the principle that Moses was getting across in Leviticus 18 verse 5. See, Moses knew and Jesus knew that no one can do all the commandments. None of us can keep the commandments fully because there's something desperately wrong with our hearts that means that we can't keep them perfectly. No matter how hard we try, we fail in every way. And so there's no way any of us can achieve our own righteousness, it has to come from outside of us. It has to actually come from God himself. And in verses 6 to 9, that's what Paul goes on to demonstrate. And he does it again by quoting Moses. And in this, time, this time he quotes from Deuteronomy um, chapter 30, uh, verse 12 to 14, uh, where Moses said, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's in verse 6. Uh, And then Paul adds that little line, you know, that is to bring Christ down. Or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does Deuteronomy say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Now, what's all that about? Well, Moses was saying to the people, look, when you hear about how to relate to God, you know, how to be right with God, don't think of it as, Okay, I've got to do. I've got to climb up to heaven. I've got to plumb the depths. You know, I've got to do all this stuff, these great heroic acts. Okay, That's not what it's about. What did Moses say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, he's saying you need to just believe the promise, the promise of salvation. Just accept that and, and confess it with your mouth. That means the mouth is just the overflow of what the heart believes. And Paul in verse 9 says that what Moses was saying there was always pointing the people forward to Jesus because verse 9 says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, there, right there is what a Christian is all about. Okay, if you if you learn nothing from the sermon... <laughs> Except this one thing, then we're going well. Okay? What is a Christian? Someone who does verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? That means God. Okay, that word Lord, it's it's the title from the Old Testament for God. Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, who has come into the world, in the flesh, fully God and fully man. That's, that's what we confess about Jesus. And what else is he? He's the saviour. See, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that implies that Jesus has died, that he has gone to the cross, paid for all of our sin, and he's risen again victorious. Okay, That's the heart of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is Lord and saviour. And that's what makes a person right with God. Not what we do, but by what Jesus has done. And what is the promise of this verse? Listen to it again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? Not you might be saved if you add a little bit of your own efforts. No, you will be saved. There's no uncertainty about this. And Paul goes on to emphasize the certainty of this promise in verses 10 to 13, which I'm going to read again because we've got to hear this promise. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he brings the scripture in again. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you hear that promise? See, there's probably some here today who are convinced that you're beyond saving, that God would never want you in his heaven. Do you know why you think that? Because you're thinking just like the Jews, the Paul's fellow Jews who didn't believe. You're thinking that it's up to you, that you have to save yourself and you look at your life and think it's a mess. There's no way God would accept me. Okay, that's not how it works. What is this tale telling us? Look to Christ. Put your faith in Him. And you will receive His righteousness, His record. You will be fully accepted. That's why the promise is certain. You will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just one other thing. Notice how Paul is still quoting the Scriptures Okay, we need to realize the Apostle Paul didn't invent the gospel. Remember what the theme of Romans is? The gospel of God. Okay, This is God's gospel, the, the good news that God has always been proclaiming right from the beginning. The good news that salvation is by grace, received through faith in Christ alone. That's, that's actually what the whole Bible is about. Okay, when, when, what Paul is saying is this is what the Bible is about. You know, if you ask, ask the average person you meet, what do you reckon the Bible is about? That'd be a good conversation starter at work. What do you reckon the Bible's about? You know, a lot of people will probably say something like, oh, yes, it's the book of rules. Or it's this pattern that, you know, if we, we follow the pattern, uh, God might accept us in the end. No, what's the Bible about? It's all about Jesus. Hey, it's all about salvation in him. All of it beginning to end. You know, Paul can go to the the most obscure passages in the law and say, look, they're all about Christ. And every passage is. All of the Old Testament looking forward to Christ. All of the New Testament revealing, proclaiming Christ. That's what the Bible is about. And that's what a Christian, therefore, is about. A Christian is someone who trusts in Christ, who is accepted as righteous in Christ. That's what a Christian is. Okay, so one way to be right with God, Christ alone. It's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. But there's a third thing here. And the third third thing is the absolute necessity of making this message known. Okay, the absolute necessity of making this known. So if salvation comes to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, then Paul goes back and asks, how does that actually come about? how is it that someone can come to the point where they actually call out to Christ for salvation? How do you get to that point? And Paul, he traces through the steps in verses 14 to 16. So he says, for someone to call on the name of the Lord, what happens? They first of all need to believe the gospel. And in order for them to believe the gospel, they have to hear the gospel. And in order for them to hear the gospel they have to have someone preach it to them. And in order for someone to preach it to them, someone has to be sent. So if you see how Paul's pointing out the steps, how it is that an unbeliever can come to salvation. And then he adds that quote from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, the rest of the passage, if you look at the rest of the passage, you'll notice that it's just a, a series of uh, quotes, again, from the Old Testament. And uh, that's because Paul, he's going on to show that his fellow Jews who had the Bible, they actually had all of those necessary steps in place for them to believe. Okay, They had people sent to them. They had people preach to them. The message was made loud and clear that Jesus is Lord and Savior. So all of the steps were in place. Where it all broke down was at this next step. Did they believe it? no they rejected it and what paul is showing in this whole chapter is that the jewish people they had no excuse okay everything was in place they should have seen it but they chose to reject it the responsibility is on them and that that's a warning for us today especially here because what are we doing we're hearing the gospel we're hearing the good news that puts the responsibility on you to respond. Okay, I know it's easy to sit and listen to a sermon and go, that was nice, and go home and we've forgotten about it already. Okay, listen. Listen to what God is saying in His Word. Respond. We're, we're, we're obligated to. Because we're, we're accountable for our actions, we're accountable for our decisions. We can't say, oh, you know, God's sovereign. It's up to him who he elects and stuff, and so I've got no responsibility. That's not how it works. God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. And so you're all under obligation to respond to the gospel. You'll be held accountable on that last day. What did you do with the message of Jesus? Okay, did you listen? Did you hear? Did you believe? And uh, you know, the, the last um, quote that Paul has here, if you look down at verse 21, this is from Isaiah, has God saying, All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's an incredible image of, of, of God's offer or his invitation to salvation. He's holding out his hands to you, saying, so Here it is, take it, it's free. It costs my son everything, but I'm giving it to you for free. Here it is, take it. Have you taken up that invitation? Have you received this salvation? Okay, don't be the person who says, No thanks. I'll do it my own way. Don't be that person. It's here, it's for you. Now, the other implication of verses 14 to 16, of course, are that it's absolutely vital that people hear the gospel. Because verses fourteen to sixteen, this is just the ordinary way that God saves people. Okay, if God's going to save someone, He doesn't do it by um, you know lightning bolts or um, visions in the sky or those sort of things. He does it by taking His people, sending them. They go out and talk about Jesus. People hear it. God works, and they're saved. That's how that's how God saves people. And so, you know, unless a person hears the gospel, very, well, they're not going to come to salvation. Uh, And so that's helpful for us because if we think about all of the people that we know who haven't yet called on the name of the Lord, you know, think of your uh, family members, think about your um, parents or your grandparents, or think about your children who are not believers. Think about your school friends or your workmates, you know, all of these people, so many people who don't know Jesus. How are they going to become Christians? How are they going to know the joy of salvation? Okay, it's only going to happen if they get to hear the gospel. Got to hear the gospel. And uh, that means that we here either have to be the ones who take the gospel to them, or we take them to the gospel. Do you know what that means? Okay, You go out and you tell them about Jesus, do that, or you bring them to where Jesus has been told. You know, In other words, invite them to church or some other event, somewhere where they can hear the gospel. That's got to be our priority. That's the number one thing. In fact, I just want to go back and remind you of verse 1 of chapter 10. I skipped over that earlier. Notice Paul's attitude when he thinks about those who don't believe. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Okay, that's where, that's where we've got to be at. When we think about our family members who don't know Jesus, when we think about those people we work with, okay, our number one desire is that they would hear, that they would come to salvation. And so verses 14 to 16 actually pre- presents us with the necessity of evangelism. And that's our task as a church. Okay, our task as a church isn't just to look after one another. That's certainly part of it. But our task of looking after each other is that we would be equipped, that we would be sent out, that we would be those people who have really beautiful feet, you know, who proclaim the good news because that's how God um, saves people. That's also why, by the way, we we support missionaries because there's people out there in the world who don't know Christ. How are they going to know Christ? Only if the gospel comes to them. That's why we support Samuel and Drudy. That's why we support Alvin and Norrell over in Mount Magden and, and hopefully we can support many more going forward. Okay? Because this is why we exist as a church. We we're on about the gospel, proclaiming Christ. So there you go, salvation, it's offered to all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you responded to that offer? And if you have, will you take that offer out to others? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this reminder of the certainty of salvation that is in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that uh, it's not based on our uh, work, it's not based on, um, on how we can clean up our own lives to make ourselves fit for you, but we thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, that he came down into this fallen world and lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he went to the cross and paid for all of the sin that we have done. And we thank you that through faith in him, we receive his righteousness as our own. Lord, we praise you for this wonderful gift. And we pray, Lord, that 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 gift that would just uh, colour everything in our lives, that the way we think about ourselves, the way we relate to others, that it would all be done from this perspective that we're righteous in Christ, not righteous in ourselves. We pray that that would be the end of our criticisms and and gossip and and, uh, thinking we're better than others. Lord, help us to be humble, to realize that in and of ourselves we're really no different to the worst sinner. And we pray, Lord, that that would give us compassion toward those who are still lost, that we want to reach them, that we want to see them also come to know this joy of having all of our sins forgiven and and having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We pray for our church, Lord. We pray that as a church community that we would be um, outward looking, that we would be... uh, grieved over um, those we love who still don't know Jesus, that we wouldn't ignore that, but rather that we would turn to you in prayer and that you would even use us, Lord, to bring the gospel to them. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.